And thank you. Um, and Father's Day is, um, Mother's Day is similar, but I've never been a mom. I've, I've been a dad. Um, and this year, I can express, I, I can understand a little bit of the intricacies that come with this day. Some people come here just so excited. Some people come here with a sense of loss. As um, many of you know, I, I lost my biological father a couple of weeks ago and had the opportunity to attend his funeral and had the opportunity to baptize him. Um, I didn't have a relationship to my father. Uh, I know that a lot of people understand that. I've been raised by a stepdad um, who nobody even knows is my stepdad because I've only called him dad since I was the littlest boy possible. And I have had the greatest dad that you can have. So I understand that you can come here with a lot of different feelings on a day like Father's Day, but I wish you a happy Father's Day, and we look forward to that day where the things that sin has broken will all be made right with our Heavenly Father. And um, what a glorious day that will be. And we thank you for those of you men who serve as examples of what manhood and biblical fatherhood looks like in this generation. We need it. So let me pray, and then we'll dive into the Word. God, thank you for dads. Uh, Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to be able to um, be a pastor of a church to, to, that my dad is in. Oh, what a gift that is, Lord. I pray for hearts that are all over the place this morning. We thank you that your spirit and your word is so big that it can minister across broad spectrums. I pray that you would come and meet us here in a mighty way. And now as we go to your word, I pray that the ministry of your word would be powerful and effective. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, well, if you would open up to Acts chapter 20, we are going to continue our study through the book of Acts. It's been a great study so far. It's pretty neat seeing this book begin to wind down and all the fruit that's come out of it. And um, just a very basic question as we get started. Have you ever thought about the nature or purpose of the local church and what the local church is really supposed to be about. I'm talking about those big kind of metaphysical sort of questions like what are we here for? What is this whole thing supposed to be? What's the point of this? Why do we do what we do? What is the local church and what is it supposed to be? about? Is a church supposed to be a place where people gather to encourage one another to live out their faith throughout the week in their relationship with Jesus? Or is the church supposed to be a place where we gather together regularly to passionately worship and to come together as a family to proclaim the name of Jesus through word, prayer, sacrament, and song? Or is the church supposed to be a place where we gather in order to be equipped so that we can be scattered to be the missionary people of God here on earth? Obviously, the answer is yes, right? The answer is yes to all those questions. But it's fascinating that people will usually emphasize one aspect of those three things, often to the neglect of others. And depending on the one that you emphasize, it'll often shape or be quite telling of what your Christian experience looks like. For those who see the church primarily 
as a place where we gather as the remnant of believers to encourage one another or care one another. They see the pinnacle of the church as the small group or care group or community group or missional community or whatever goofy names people use for these things these, uh, during this time. But for these folks, most of the Christian life is lived out with others in the small group experience, and they often value that over other aspects in the local church. And this view led to the extreme leads to the house church movement where things like structures or membership are often seen as detrimental or maybe even worldly. Commitment to the local church is often low, but commitment to the small group is held really high. Also in this view, I'm talking about being held to the extreme. Evangelism is often not a huge priority. They're usually very good at the one anothering passages that you see in scriptures, but very low on reaching out to the unchurched. And for people who are looking for deep community and living out the one anothering, you could see how that would be really, really attractive. For those who see the church as a place to gather and to come together for passionate worship, they will often view the church through the lenses of experience. This view, if taken to the extreme, can lead to programmaticism. Like there should be a different worship event as often as possible, on many nights as possible. The overall health of the church is often critiqued based on what the overall worship experience. And when people hold this view incredibly high, they'll often choose a church by what that experience is like. They'll go and visit a church and they'll say, this experience was thumbs up, this experience was thumbs down, and that's what they're looking for in a church. Also, for many within this view, again, holding it to the extreme, they will use insider language. Church experiences are often full of very churchy things, with very churchy language. So churchy, in fact, that the uninitiated might have no clue what's going on. I, I remember, that was my experience when I got saved. I got saved into a very churchy group of friends, and we'd come together, and they'd be singing these songs, and I was just like, how do you just know these songs? Did, did I like miss a part of getting saved? Like when, when you get saved, were they just like programmed into you? Like you downfile something into a, a hard drive? Because I had no clue what they were talking about, but I could remember every Black Sabbath lyric that's ever, you know, they, it was really freaky, right? And um, insider language was just all over the place. And that pushed to its extreme can what? It can make you feel like you're not an insider or you don't belong. And many also um, who see the church primarily as a place to gather together for mission, they'll view the success or lack of success of the church based on the depth of evangelism or based on the reach of the missions program. And this view taken to the extreme can lead to parachurchism. In this view, the church is often viewed as, as a detriment to missions, so people that hold this view to the extreme position often invest the majority of their time and investment into parachurch ministries, mission organizations, apart from involvement in and through the local church. And they view the local church, this is where the paradigm flips, they view the local church as a place to fund and serve the parachurch, 
rather than the more biblical paradigm of seeing the parachurch as a place to strengthen and deepen the ministry of the local church. Also, within this view, the criticism is they care a whole lot about reaching the unchurched, but don't care a whole lot about shepherding and discipling those toward Christian growth. So as we look at encouragement, worship experience, mission and evangelism, are any of these bad things? Uh, of course they're not. Is it bad to be passionate about any of things? Of course not. Is it bad to invest yourself in any of these things? Of course not. But the danger comes when people emphasize one of these things to the neglect of all of them. Each of these things are critical to the overall health of the church, and the local church needs to have all of them to be the full expression of the body of Christ here on earth. And this morning's passage is a really clear picture that you don't have to choose one of these. It's not like as I put forth these three forms of Christianity, the application is going to be which camp do you fall into? The application we're going to see in the passage through the writing of Luke by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is giving a detailed account of how Paul prioritized all of these areas and how each is crucial for the church to look like the body of Christ here on earth. So as the passage begins, we see Paul traveling from church to church seeking to encourage the churches. Look with me starting in verse 1 of chapter 20. It'll be projected up behind me if anybody doesn't have a Bible with them. And as the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said farewell and departed for Macedonia. And when we had gone through those regions and given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. And there he spent three months, and when a plot was made against him by the Jews, he was about to set sail for Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. Sopater the Berean, son of Pyrrhus, accompanied him, and of the Thessalonians, Aristarchus and Secundus and Gaius of Derby and Timothy and the Asians, Tychicus and Trophimus, these were on ahead waiting for us at Troas, but we sailed away from Philippi under the days, after the days of unleavened bread, and in five days we came to Troas where we stayed for seven days. I've shared this when I've preached on many passages before, but if the Holy Spirit says something once, it's enough, and it bears listening to. If he repeats it, that's how in the Greek or Hebrew you showed emphasis of something through repetition. And it twice repeats that Paul went to encourage the churches. As you see in verse 1, after encouraging them, he said farewell and depart. And then verse 2, when he had gone through these regions, he gave them much encouragement. And then he went on to Greece. And it's not mentioned in verses 3 through 6, but it's implied that what Paul was doing in these first two groups of churches, he was doing in these other churches just as he had done in verses 1 and 2. He was traveling from city to city to these churches that he had planted, encouraging the congregations and encouraging the leaders that he had raised up as he went from city to city. And it's really neat. You know, when you think of Paul, I'm a church planter, so I often think of Paul the church planter. And when you look at Paul the church planter, you see that he's not only interested in planting churches. 
but he cared for these churches after they were planted and after they were established. He stayed at each of them for different amounts of time, and there's different reasons for that. You see, as you look through those first six verses, some of the reasons are mentioned, like he got chased out of town. That's a good reason to leave, right? Um, they're about to kill you, so um, move on and go and encourage another church because you can't encourage them when you're dead. And um, then there's some other reasons that we don't know. Maybe he just needed a short time with this church. But we do know that as he was drawing near to the time where he was going to go back to Jerusalem, back into the belly of the beast, which he starts talking about towards the end of this chapter and into the next chapter, that encouraging the churches that he had already planted became a major priority in the life and the heart of Paul. And we get, when we get into the language that he uses at the end of the chapter, you have to believe that he was already aware that the Jerusalem trip was going to be what led to his final demise and what led to his death. But it's interesting that that did not lead Paul to have this season of a pity party or go into the, the poor me's. His focus was on strengthening the churches, not on his own need. And I know that this is a bit of a tangent, but I think it's a really worthwhile tangent that the Spirit is put on display in what Paul was doing here through what we celebrate on Father's Day. I know what I'm about to describe is not necessarily indicative of everybody's earthly experience because sin has wreaked havoc on so many relationships, but I'm talking about the ideal. Paul looked at these churches as his spiritual children. He actually said in 1 Corinthians that you people, you have many teachers, but you don't have many fathers in the faith. And as their spiritual father and as seeing them as his spiritual children, his needs came secondary to providing for his kids. Even though pain was in his future, he didn't abdicate his responsibility of spiritual fatherhood because ultimately he desired greater things for his children than he desired for himself. And I just want to thank each of you who have decided to invest your lives and your children and the children in this church and to show them what it looks like to be a real man and a real man who loves Jesus and is willing to invest your life and put your life on the line to show your kids or show other people's kids what it means to love Jesus. Your efforts do not go unnoticed and they do not go unappreciated. The world needs to see what real manhood looks like. There is a mantropy issue in this world right now. And our world is suffering under the effects of wusses of men out there. And they need to be able to see what a man loves Jesus is really all about. So thank you that we have men who have recognized this and stepped up to the plate in this church. Praise God for you. And you've done so as Paul has done, not looking for recognition. And that's really what it's all about, knowing that the recognition comes from your heavenly Father. And even though it's sort of mentioned in passing in the middle of the tale of adventure, don't miss the importance of gathering for the sake of encouragement. And we are all wired to need encouragement. 
There is no encouragement to be found in isolation. If you're here and you've been hurting or you're discouraged, I know that your discouragement wants to make you isolate. It's one of the enemy's greatest tactics. It's what he did in the very first sin, right? What did they do? They sin, and then they're like, let's go diving in the bushes, and let's go isolate, and let's get away from our Father. To take somebody during the moment when they need encouragement the most and to push them into isolation. We were created to need the encouragement of the body of Christ. It's one of the primary reasons that we gather. Hebrews 3.13, it's um, very clear. Encourage one another day after day as long as it's still called today. Lest any of you become hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And I know that the focus of that verse is usually encourage um, one another day after day part, but the truth be told that it plays itself out way too often in the, the parenthetical little phrase in there, lest we be hardened. I'm going to give you an absolute. People who isolate develop hard hearts. It's an absolute statement. I know that um, they say that only Sith make absolute statements, but I'm making an absolute. That people who isolate will develop a hard heart. It's not always easy to want to gather when you feel discouraged. It can be often very unnatural to want to gather when you feel discouraged, but your heart needs it. Your heart's worth it. And it really happens most dynamically in the small group environment. I mean, when we gather here, we can be encouraged through the Spirit and through the preaching of God's Word and through what He's doing here in the church, but it's when we grow deeper in community and commitment to know and be known where encouragement really just kind of blasts off and we really begin to see it take place. But let me point out one more thing before moving on in our text. Paul might have been the person most deeply in need of encouragement out of everybody in this text. It's easy to forget about that man's humanity when you read the book of Acts like it's a superhero novel, but it's not a superhero novel. Paul was a regular man. Paul hurt and had emotions just like you and me. But take a quick look over the previous chapters. What are the things that most people get discouraged about? If you're here and you're discouraged, what are the things that most people get discouraged about? Rejection? Yep. Literally every paragraph over the previous five paragraphs has rejection of Paul in those passages. Physical malady? Yep. I would say being chronically beaten with rods would probably fall under physical malady. And remember, he was writing to the Corinthians, who we saw in two chapters ago when he wrote about this thorn in the flesh that he begged the Lord to take away from him, and the Lord wouldn't take away. So has anybody ever been discouraged by a physical malady that wouldn't go away? I'm sure Paul understood that. Broken relationships? Yep, you actually see him parting ways with his best friend, his early mentor in Christ, and just broken relationship after broken relationship. The uncertainty of not knowing what tomorrow will bring? Good Lord, yes, does he struggle with that. But this man who needed encouragement devoted himself to go out and be an encouragement to others. I have heard way too many folks over my short time in Christ grow bitter because they didn't receive the encouragement that they felt like they needed at the time when they felt like they were looking for it. And I just want to encourage you, if that's you, don't be bitter. Be the change that you want to see. 
In the midst of needing encouragement, Paul went out of his way to be an encourager. It doesn't matter what you're going through. If you have God's spirit, your trial doesn't define you. All those things that I said could have been a discouragement to Paul. He wasn't Paul the pain sufferer. He wasn't Paul the isolated guy. He wasn't Paul the rejected man. His name was Christian. And Christian was his his identity. And if that is your identity, you are able to be an encouragement even in the midst of being discouraged. How powerful is God's spirit? As a matter of fact, I can speak from experience that chronic pain can lead you to radical self-absorption. And at that point, we can make the decision to either grow increasingly self-centered or we can make the decision to pour out our lives into the lives of others and be an encouragement to others. One of the greatest ways to fight discouragement is to make the decision to be an encourager in the midst of that discouragement. The second thing that we see is it was also a given that the people were going to gather for corporate worship. Look at verse 7. It says, And on the first day of the week, when we were gathered together to break bread, Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day, but he prolonged his speech until midnight. Can you guys help me out with something here? Um, I'm I'm okay in Greek, but I'm not very good in, in English. So, Right after the words on the first day of the week, which we're going to come back to in verse 7, what does the next word say? Does it say if? Really? Well, okay. So it reads the same as it does in the Greek then. Thank you for confirming that. So on the first day of the week, if they gathered together to break bread isn't what the text says, right? On the first day of the week, as long as it fit into their hectic schedules, they gathered together to break bread. After we fill up our schedules and try to squeeze every dollar into living a lifestyle that we don't really need to live and it doesn't really make us happy and then spend the rest of our time worshiping our kids and spending all of their time in things that aren't even making them godly, then, if we have time, we'll gather together to break bread. That's not in the English either, right? Because it's not in the Greek, but I just wanted to make sure that the translators nailed the translation on this. I'm going to just break it down to you. I'm going to tell you straight. It doesn't say if, it says when. I love how God doesn't feel the need to qualify things to the point of emasculating the truth. Like we're doing God a favor by showing up to worship him on Sunday mornings. It says when. Because God works off of the presupposition that we are going to be prioritizing the gathering together of the body of Christ. It shouldn't be an outlandish expectation. When did when become if? It was the biggest point in my study this week, is I couldn't get over the fact that when did when become an if? And look, I'm not trying to be condemning by asking anybody that question, but if you feel conviction, good. It's proof that your heart's still beating in your chest. I'm not trying to condemn anybody, though. The reality is Scripture presumes that we will prioritize gathering together for worship. Look at any passage about the gathering of the body of Christ and tell me if you ever find a conditional clause attached to it or if the word if is ever attached to it. Read a book written before this century. The idea is that gathering together would be considered optional 
isn't even written about because it isn't even a concept that would have been able to be in the author's mind to be able to write about it. When the heck did when become if? And how did it end up that way? And look, I just want to shoot straight with you. I'm not talking to the church. Because we can usually take broad shots across the bow and just miss something that's intended for your heart by talking to the church and insulting the church. I'm talking to you. Do you look at the when as an if? And the hard thing about this message is you're already gathered here. So probably the person I want to say this to isn't going to hear it. But <laughs> parents, I, I want to make this super clear to you. If you see gathering as an if rather than a when, then your children are going to see if become why bother. Let me repeat that to you. If, if you see this as if rather than when, your children are going to become seeing if rather than why bother. And, and this ain't the kind of thing where I even understand why I have to push on it. Since the Lord saved me, I couldn't wait to show up to worship the Savior I love with the people I love. It, it's my favorite pastime. It's my favorite hobby. If you ask me what my hobbies are, I don't, I'm not a man that has any hobbies. I've tried a couple of things like surfing and some different sports. I'm not very athletic. My hobby is worshiping Jesus. My hobby is getting to know his scriptures. It, it's an excitement that doesn't start on Sunday. Saturday, that feeling begins to hit the heart like, yes, I get to go worship Jesus tomorrow. Does anybody get that feeling? Like, hallelujah, Sunday's coming. I get to go be with the people of God and worship my Savior. Why would I want to be anywhere else but right here doing exactly this? And all these years later, guess what? That feeling is stronger. It hasn't weakened. We don't show people what sanctification looks like in the body of Christ by saying 30 years ago when I got saved, I used to love to come together on Sundays, but now, eh, you know, if the grandkids allow and if the kids aren't doing this or that, then I'll get together when I can. No way, man. You don't get in that pattern of seeing when as an if if you stay in the pattern of looking forward to worshiping together as a non-negotiable. And a few other things we see about their gathering. It says that it was on the first day of the week. So if you ever wondered, why do we worship on Sunday? Um, our Jewish uh, heritage before Christianity, they worship on the Sabbath on Saturday. Um, well, Christ rose on Sunday, and that set the tone for coming together on the first day of the week, which is why Sunday has become our first day of the week. And then you see passages like this, where it says when they were gathered together on the first day of the week. It also says that when they gathered, they broke bread. So why do we do communion every week? I've heard people express, well, it could just become a ritual if we do it every week, and maybe the meaning will be zapped out of it. The meaning doesn't have to be zapped out of it, because guess what? The gospel never loses any significance, and it never becomes any less exciting. The gospel becomes more exciting. And Jesus said the reason that we do this, he said, do this regularly in remembrance of me. How could remembering Jesus ever lose any of its luster or any of its shine? 
And there was a real eagerness when they gathered for the preaching of the word. Look at verses 8 through 12. It says, well, first it said they prolonged his speech until midnight, which is just hilarious. Um, and there were many lamps in the upper room where they were gathered, which is funny because this place looks like a dark dungeon. And a young man named Eutyches, sitting in the window, sat into, uh, sank into a deep sleep as Paul, dark, uh, talked still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from a third-story window and was taken up dead. But Paul went down and bent over him and taking him in his arms, he said, don't be alarmed, for his life's still in him. And when Paul had gone up, he'd broken bread and eaten, and he conversed with them a long while until daybreak. So you're looking at the clock at midnight thinking, wrap it up. <laughs> or you're thinking like, dude falling out the window, that's going to wrap it up at least. <laughs> nope. <laughs> He's just like, look, your death is secondary to my preaching here. So <laughs> I'll continue until the lights come on naturally. And then they departed. They took the youth away alive. And they were not a little comforted. I would hope not. They just saw a dude fall out the window and come back to life. So I know that a miracle is going on in this passage, and that's pretty cool to see, and it's easy to focus on, but the real emphasis is that these guys gathered together to encourage one another. They prioritized gathering together for worship, and they were hungry for the Word of God. Paul's preaching straight through the night, and guess what? There's no place that they'd rather be. I... I I was looking at this church that was advertised on the internet as a drive-in church, and their catchphrase was, you don't even have to get out of your car, and we'll get you out of here in under an hour. And you put these two side by side, and it's comical, isn't it? I mean, it's absolutely comical. There's no place that they'd rather be. And it made me wonder if oversaturation leads to lack of appreciation. You know the saying that familiarity breeds contempt? I remember this one time in England when I was preaching. And there were people that were coming from the, down by Edinburgh, Scotland. And they were driving about an hour each way because it was not a given that you could find somebody that would preach verse by verse or chapter by chapter through scriptures. And these people would just want to make a day out of it, and they'd want to hang out and talk afterwards. And I remember them bringing these casseroles over to the place that we were staying and said, we heard that you're going to come and plant the church in Scotland. And I'm like, really? You heard that, huh? Did the Holy Spirit just tell it to you? But it, what they were expressing was, wow, there's somebody here preaching the word. And it's not even like they were looking for some celebrity preacher. I was just some, like, 26-year-old hack of a dude trying to find my way through God's word. But they were so excited to have somebody to open up God's word with them. And I just want to ask you, if your heart has been captivated by the word of God, what place is sweeter than to be found in the study of God's word? What place is sweeter than to just have your nose in your Bible with the pencil out, just circling this thing like it's a love letter written directly to your heart from God's? Man, I love God's word. And if I was to ever die, I hope it's like you tickies, just doing it in the middle of exactly what I love. I hope someday I'm like turned to passage, and I just, it'll be awkward for you, but not for me. Um, so, 
sorry. Uh, um, The last point, not only do we see them gathered for encouragement and for worship, mission is held higher than their comfort or their preference. Look with me at verses 13 through 16. But going on ahead to the ship, we set sail for Asos, intending to take Paul aboard there, for he had arranged, intending himself to go by land. And we met up with us at Asos. We took him on board to Mytilene, and sailing there, we came the following day opposite Chios, and the next day we touched at Samos, and the next day we went to Miletus, for Paul decided to sail past Ephesus. That's what we're going to come back to, so that he might not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hastening to be at Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. Um, Look, this dude loved these churches that he was gathering to encourage to worship with, and he, he really loved Ephesus. It was the church that he spent the longest at. He spent two and a half years with the, with the Ephesians. He spent about three different visits. Most people say there's two that are recorded, but there's, there's historical documents of a third visit that he came back there. He wrote a book of the Bible to them. They're mentioned multiple times in the book of Acts. And you're going to see, especially in next week's passage, that he really loved the Ephesians. But even though they were begging for him to stay, and his heart, I'm sure, wanted to stay, he knew that the mission of God was calling him to go onward and upward. Even though it came at a cost, even though it was not comfortable, even though it meant not being in the presence of some of the most the relationships that had grown very dear to him, multiplication is part of God's design. But that can't happen if you're only focused on maintaining the handful of relationships that you already have. This has to be one of the most difficult principles for me to be able to teach in the church. I say it over and over and over, but it goes against the grain of the way that we're wired. So we have to go over it over and over. I have to go over it over and over and over. And it's worth going over, over and over and over because it's scriptural. Look, we're preparing to send out Daniel and Alexandra to go plant the church. You know what that means is one of these days... My best friend's not going to be in that little closet that he calls an office, the size of a pinto thing that he sits in all day. And we're not going to be able to hang out every day praying together and discussing Jesus together. And some of you who I love really dearly, you're probably going to go with them. And that means that we're not going to be in regular fellowship with you anymore either. But that's how multiplication works. And that's the pattern that we see here in Paul. And that's truly the pattern that we saw in Jesus, who only knew one relationship since eternity passed, sitting in perfect glory with the triune Father. But he left that relationship and left the comfort of that heavenly abode to be able to call and reach the unreached. Even though it was costly, he saw you as worth it. How many of you are grateful that Jesus counted the cost and still saw it as worth it? Christianity is so much more than finding some small group of friends to do life with. I mean, it it should include that. That should be a, a part of it. But we're to be a missionary people. And being dedicated to living a missionary lifestyle has to come at a cost. You can't be a costless missionary. Those terms are mutually 
exclusive. So seeing the threefold purpose of the local church is why keeping the gospel central is so critical. Sometimes people see gospel centrality as beginner's Christianity, but I would submit that if that's the way you look at the term gospel centrality, that you do not see the gospel rightly. You've probably heard this quote ad nauseum if you've sat and listened to me preach more than once, but as Tim Keller said, the gospel is not the ABCs of Christianity, it's the A through Z's of Christianity. The gospel calls us to gather together to encourage one another as family. We're reconciled and we're made one family by the gospel of Jesus Christ. God took you who were once not a people and made you a people, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 10 through 20. And he's made you one people of God, breaking down the dividing wall through the cross of Jesus Christ. So you are reconciled to come and encourage one another and be the people of God. The gospel calls us to gather together to prioritize worship and the ministry of the word. Because you didn't just guess the gospel, it was through the ministry of the word that you understood the gospel. And the gospel is the story of a missionary God who has called a missionary people to himself to go out and tell a world who needs to hear the message of a lovesick father. You are called to be a missionary people. The gospel calls you to that. So a healthy church should not prioritize one aspect of this to the neglect of the others, but should uphold and prioritize all three. We need encouragement. We need to be encouraged as the people of God, and we need to be encouragers as the people of God. We need dynamic times of worship where we're lifted up through the preaching of the Son of God, through the gospel of God. And we need to call ourselves to remember that this world is not our home, and while we live here we live as aliens because we were called as missionaries to call people out of this world into an eternity and glory far greater than this for the christian this is as close to hell as you will ever experience for the non-believer this is as close to heaven as they will ever experience and if you have a pulse that should motivate you so a couple of application questions as we close as you sit here today did you come in need of encouragement Can you humble yourself and allow the body of Christ to encourage you? Grab somebody and say, man, I need to be encouraged. Don't come here with a need that needs to be encouraged and leave with that need being unvocalized. Number two is how are you actively seeking to be an encouragement in the life of others? And if every sentence when somebody asks how you're doing is just you rambling about, oh, my trial, my affliction, my, 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 I, me, my, I, me, my, I, me, my, I. And you never get to a you. First of all, people are probably going to stop asking sooner or later. But secondly, evaluate that. You're not going to find the encouragement that your heart's longing for by only thinking about you. You find it by being an encouragement in the life of others. Number three is, do you see worship as an if we gather or a when we gather, like it's put forth in this passage? Number four is, has there there's been a theme of the hunger for God's word? It's run through the last four chapters. What does that hunger look like in your life, and how are you actively feeding that hunger? And the last question is, do you prioritize the church scattered on mission as much as you value the church gathered and what does that practically look like for you you've already gathered now for you to scatter and leave here as God's missionary
people. Let me pray. God, thank you for this text. I thank you for the threefold purpose that we see in this text to encourage, to gather, to corporately worship, and to be scattered to live out our calling as your missionary people. God, I pray that we would grab a hold of that calling. God, that we would be enthused and lit up by that calling. And I pray that as we leave here, that we would realize that there is a world in need of the hope of a Savior. In Jesus' name, amen.